Uh, well, happy Father's Day to all the dads that are here with us uh, uh, this morning. Uh, we do want to take a moment to recognize and honor the dads that are here in uh, the room uh, this morning. So if you are a father or a grandfather um, or an expectant father, uh, could you stand so that we can recognize you? Okay. And uh, please remain uh, standing. We do have a a gift that we uh, want to put in your hands uh, today. We thought about giving you a bottle of essential oils, (laughs) but decided against that. Uh, Go ahead and begin to disperse those. Decided instead to give you a little pocket knife uh, that features a knife blade and a fingernail file for those pesky fingernails. And there's even been a a pair of scissors that is, I can't get these out. Yeah, a pair of scissors that uh, actually uh, works that comes with with this. So if you're ever threatened by anyone on the street, just uh, (laughs) these deadly scissors can ward off any would-be attackers. And you could actually, I believe, attach these. Yeah, there's a ring to attach uh, this pocket knife to uh, your keys. And on the knife are the words, the Lord is my rock from Psalm uh, 18, uh, verse 2, which we trust you are finding true, absolutely, to uh, be true in in, in your life. Uh, But hopefully all of you have uh, received this. Let me take just a, a moment or two to pray. Uh, for God's blessing upon our dads. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of fatherhood. We're we're thankful for the dads that have marked our own lives. I thank you for the fathers in my life uh, who uh, are so much a part of the legacy that I enjoy from day to day. I thank you for the spiritual fathers that um, I have been so enriched by over over many years. I thank you for the dads that are in this room this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all the work that these dads do in, in leading their families and in molding and shaping the lives of uh, the children that you have given uh, to them. I know, da- Lord, that some of these dads are Uh, younger, some are uh, older, some have young children that are in their home, and some have older children in the home and then even out of the home. Some have grandchildren, perhaps even great-grandchildren. Some of these dads, Lord, have children who are walking with you. Uh, Some have children who are not walking in your ways, Uh, Some of our fathers, Lord, are rejoicing, and I know some are grieving, and and many of the dads in this room are doing a little bit of both. Many of these dads, Lord, have wives by their sides who who know and who love you, and some of these dads do not. We ask this morning, Lord, that your special... A blessing would be upon each of these fathers in a very uh, special way that you would help them to understand the God-given power that they possess and how important their ministry to uh, their children is, how fraught with eternal significance their labor is from day to day. I pray, Lord, that you would give to each dad exactly the grace that He needs to be exactly what each of his children need for him to be at whatever stage of life they are at at this time. Help these dads to mirror your image to their children. I'm sobered by how much we as dads uh, shape our children's view of you. So help us as dads by the lives that we lead, by the example that we set by the things that we 
we do and say by the ways that we go about relating to our children. Help us through all of these means to show our children what you are like as their heavenly father. And when we fail as dads to live up to our high calling, help us to give to our children the gift of a repentant father. Help us to be the biggest repenter that our children may know. May all the children of Cornerstone know what it is like to have a dad who says, I'm sorry, I was wrong, no excuses. Will you forgive me? And may all the children of Cornerstone know what it's like to have a dad who abounds in hope because he believes in a truly great Savior whose name is Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would use all of the dads here at Cornerstone together with their wives to to bring up a godly generation of men and women who will believe in Jesus with all of their heart and love you, Lord, with all of their heart, soul, strength, and mind who will know you and do great exploits in the mighty name of Jesus. And help us to never get in the way of that, but to only father and to mother our children in a way that is conducive to that great end that you might be glorified and the message of the gospel might go forth in this increasingly dark culture in which we live. We ask now, Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Help me to open up Uh, your word to uh, those who are assembled here today. Help me to serve my brothers and my sisters well uh, this morning and give us all open hearts that are ready to just receive uh, the bounty that you provide from your word. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. By the way, to the sound team, I just noticed I don't have the clicker. So can't preach without a clicker. <laughs> um, there is an insert that is in your uh, bulletin uh, regarding the uh, Man Forum breakfast that is coming up uh, this Tuesday. So the insert looks something, thank you, looks something like this. And that is uh, this Tuesday, two days from now. At 6 in the morning, this is our ninth uh, annual Man Forum breakfast. We'll be meeting in room uh, 103. And uh, all the men uh, of Cornerstone are invited to join us for this time. Even if you don't normally, you're not normally able to make it to Man Forum at 6 o'clock, we would absolutely love to see you. It'll be a great time of food and fellowship and encouragement At 6 o'clock, even if you can't stay for very long, just come and grab something to eat and be on your way to to work. If you do want to bring something or to help in in any way, just go by the men's ministry table after the the service this morning or talk to Mario Lamone about that. Otherwise, just come on Tuesday and join us for this great time of fellowship together with uh, the men. Also, I trust you're getting much out of your reading through Daniel. Uh, Lord willing, you're through the book of Daniel. Uh, at this point, just reading through the text of, of the book of Daniel. Starting this week, we'll be uh, reading a chapter at a time through Warren Wearsby's commentary. And if you would like a copy of his commentary, you can pick one up for $12 at the men's ministry table after the service, and then you can begin reading together uh, with us uh, through his commentary together with reading uh, Daniel 1 once again uh, this week. Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles. uh, I want to preach to the men this morning, and I want to have you turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 That's all we're going to do is look at this one verse, and it's everything we can do to just keep this contained into one message, uh, actually, 
Um, the seven pillars of our uh, men's ministry here at uh, Cornerstone, this is something that was the product of our early meeting times as a man forum about nine years ago. And once a month, we still review uh, these pillars uh, in our uh, man forum meeting times on Tuesday mornings. These pillars represent uh, the seven things that cornerstone men have in common. They are the seven things that we as men rally around. It is these seven things that bind us together as brothers amongst other things. And we want these seven things to describe our men. And let me just run through them and see if they describe you. Pillar number one is weakness. This is the first thing that all of us as men share in common, weakness. The second pillar, the second thing that all of us as men share in common is ignorance. The third pillar, the third thing that we as men all share in common is failure. So how are you doing so far? We, we share all of these things in common. Every man the world over is characterized by weakness in and of himself, ignorance in and of himself, and sinful failure. These pillars are easy for a fallen man to achieve. They actually describe, as I said a minute ago, every man. It's with the fourth pillar that a separation commences between every man in the world and the Christian man. The fourth pillar is confession or a humble willingness to confess to these previous three things of weakness, ignorance, and failure, confessing them and doing so without excuse. Manly leadership does not begin with hiding weakness, ignorance, and failure. Manly leadership also does not begin with confessing other people's weakness, ignorance, and failures. Manly leadership involves looking at the logs in our own eyes and confessing them before we get into the business of confessing the failures of other people. I've known men who have decided that they wanted to begin to lead their wife spiritually and so they sat down with their wife and essentially started off by confessing her weakness and her ignorance and her failure and then presenting themselves as I am God's gift to help you with these things. Minutes later, such men were scratching their heads, wondering why that didn't go so well and why their wife was so resistant to their leadership. In contrast, real manly leadership begins with a man confessing his own failings and shortcomings and being a premier example, a leader in humility and repentance before his wife and his children. The fifth pillar of our men's ministry is a great savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. In fact, it is because we have such a great Savior in Jesus that we men can have the courage to confess our weaknesses and our ignorance and our sins. We know that he loves us no matter what. We know that we're not condemned in spite of our failings, even as Christians. We know that we can take our weakness to him and he can make us strong. We know that he can take our ignorance and make us wise. And we know that because he died on the cross for our sins, that he can take our sinful failures and render us through his blood forgiven and justified and free from sin. And knowing such things gives us the courage that we need to face the worst about ourselves and to speak openly about them. The sixth pillar is prayer. We come running to God, confessing our sins to him, crying out to him 
to be our Savior, asking him to forgive us and to give us the wisdom and the power that we need to live as he calls us to live. And the final pillar is hope, a hope that is birthed out of our crying out to Jesus and looking solely to him, coming forth from crying out to Jesus, we find ourselves bursting with hope for ourselves and for those that we lead. This is not a shallow hope, but a deeply rooted hope that emerges from the ashes of our own brokenness and is fueled by the fire of faith in Jesus Christ. A hope that literally turns a man into an unstoppable force for good in the lives of other people. A freight train cannot stop such a man. The gates of hell cannot stop such a man whose heart is abounding with this kind of hope that comes from faith in Christ and from the depths of his own brokenness. You'll notice on the screen behind me that pillar number six is prayer. And there's, um, as, we, as we see it there, it's not just item number six on a list of seven There's a sense in which we can say that prayer is the appropriate response that the previous five pillars lead into. And we can also say that hope is simply the byproduct of us praying to our great Savior, Jesus Christ. So obviously, prayer is an important part of godly manhood, and this fact is is hugely driven home to us in the verse that I want us to look at today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. What fascinates me about uh, what happens here in verse 8 is that in verse 9, Paul is going to be speaking to women. So in verse 8, he speaks to men. In verse 9, he begins speaking to women. And when Paul begins speaking to women... He's going to speak to them in verses 9 through 15, and he's going to end up speaking 117 words to women on a variety of topics, from clothing to childbearing. But in verse 8, Paul speaks only 18 words to men. And we will see that the lone topic that he addresses with men is prayer. Paul could have talked to men about a variety of legitimate topics, but he chooses to speak to men only about prayer. Listen to what he says in verse eight. He says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. That's it. And this is what I want us to look at today. In this passage, we will observe five things that God wants from men with regard to prayer. Five things that God wants from Christian men with regard to prayer. Number one, God wants men to pray as a foundational habit of life. God wants men to pray as a foundational habit habit of life. Observe what Paul says in verse eight. He says, I want the men in every place to what? To pray, to pray. The verb that is translated pray here in verse eight is in the present tense, indicating that Paul is calling upon men to do something more than occasionally. He's calling upon men to pray continually, habitually, And as the characteristic pattern of their life, prayer is something that men should be identified by, something that men should be known for doing. When our oldest daughter was a little girl, she would sometimes plead with us to do certain things that she really wanted to do, and she would sometimes come across like we just had to do that thing. 
And when we would ask her, why do we have to do this thing that you're pleading with us to do? She would often say, because it's just what we do. That was her answer. Well, prayer is like that. It is something, it's supposed to be something that men just do. It's what we as men should be known for. So Paul says, I want the men to be praying as the characteristic pattern of their life. That's the fundamental desire that Paul expresses for men in this verse. But what Paul does in this verse and saying this raises a fascinating question that I'm sure many women would find themselves asking. The question is, why is this instruction to pray the only thing that God says to the men in this chapter where he's talking to men and to women? I imagine women sitting in the audience when this text is being read and they hear Paul say, I want the men to dot, dot, dot at the beginning of verse eight. And these women sit up when they realize that God is directly speaking to the men in their lives. And such women may think this is awesome. Finally, God is going to talk to my man. I got a list a mile long of things that God needs to talk to my husband about. And here we go. And such women might be disappointed with the fact that God only has 18 words to say. Speaking to the man in their life. And those 18 words compose simply one instruction about prayer. And then immediately God turns his attention from the men and begins speaking in verse 9. 117 words to the women from verses 9 through 15. When Paul gets to verse 9 and says, likewise, I want the women to. I imagine some women saying to Paul, wait a minute, Paul, that's it. That's it. And you're now moving on to women. That's all you're going to say to my husband. What about the rest of my list of things that you need to talk to my husband about? Which brings us back to the question I asked a minute ago. Why is it that the only thing that God is asking of the men here is that they pray rather than other things that a woman might wish that God would talk to her husband about? I think I know the answer, and most of you probably do as well. And it's because there is a universe of good inside this one thing called prayer. Is that not true? A man who prays as a habit of life will be a humble man who understands that he is dependent upon God and he will understand that he is helpless because what is prayer but the practice of helplessness before God. Also, a man who lives his life in continual prayer is a man who always has his face turned toward God in a spirit of worship, in a spirit of confession when he falls short, and in a spirit of gratitude to God for all of God's blessings when they are received. A man who prays continuously won't be anxious or stressed out because the peace of God will be guarding his heart and his mind in Christ Jesus he will be a patient man because he is in on the secret that God is working in the lives of those that he is praying for. This man doesn't try to change his children's hearts because he knows that only God can do that. The God whom he is pouring out his heart to on behalf of his children each day. Such a man is also a man who increasingly gets caught up in the larger story of what God is doing in the world, and he's learning God's will. He's being shaped by God's will, and he's praying according to God's will, asking God's will to be done and to be brought to pass. Such a man is not a self-willed man, but a God-willed man. I could go on, but think about it, ladies. Is this not everything that you want in a husband? Is not such a prayer life 
the fountain of all of these other virtues? Is it not true that everything else that is supposed to be in a man's life inevitably flows from this wonderful fountain? God is wise beyond what we can imagine. He knows what he's doing here. And this instruction from God is a mother load kind of instruction. God knows that if men do this one thing, then a thousand giants will get slain in the process. God tells men to pray continuously and men hear that and say, okay, by God's grace, I'm going to do this one thing. And they have no clue of all the changes and the goodness that they are in for. That's the power of living with your face toward God in prayer, which Paul is calling men into here. While we're at it, let's ponder another question And that is, why does Paul single out only the men and tell them to pray, but he does not repeat that instruction for the women in verses 9 through 15? Is it that men are supposed to pray and the women don't have to? Why does Paul single out the men and tell only them to pray? Well, here's why. Paul knows that in a church where the men are praying, the women will follow suit. There are churches where the women pray, but the men do not. Usually it is the women who are the first to say, I think we need to pray. And it's the men who say, hang on, let me try one more thing first. I personally know of no church where the men pray and the women don't. If the men are praying as they should, the women will do the same. So again, God is demonstrating his wisdom here. This is a surgical strike from God. God knows that if the men are praying as they ought, then so many other areas in the family and in the church will be addressed in the process. God also knows that if men habitually pray, it will be inevitable that the women in the church will pray as well as go the men so goes the rest of the church, right? So sober up, men. Be done with lesser things. Get caught up in the larger story of what God is doing in the world and enter into that story through prayer. Pray habitually. Pray as the characteristic pattern of your life because there is a whole universe of good inside of such praying for you and for those that you are called to lead. There's a second thing that God wants from the men when it comes to prayer that we can observe here in verse eight. And that is that God wants men to be motivated by the gospel to pray. He wants men to be motivated by the gospel to pray. You'll notice that Paul begins verse eight by saying, therefore, I want the men to pray. And his use of the word therefore tells us that his call to prayer is connected to what Paul has just been talking about in the preceding verses. So listen to what Paul has just been saying. And by the way, the passage I'm about to read is the passage that Pastor David Platt in Virginia, read two weeks ago when President Donald Trump showed up unannounced at their church service in Virginia. And David Platt, to his credit, read these very verses and then prayed for our president. Listen to what Paul says, beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity. This, in other words, this call to prayer in verses one and two is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. 
For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul delivers a call to prayer in verses 1 and 2. And then he goes right into rehearsing gospel truths starting in verse 3. God is Savior. God desires all to be saved. There is one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who mediates God and his grace to us. He is the one go-between through whom we can approach the Father. This Christ has come into the world and given himself as a ransom for our salvation at the cross. And in giving his life, he also bore witness, gave testimony to the truth about God. Paul then basically says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. In response to these gospel truths, I want the men in every place to pray. Evidently, Paul views men praying as a natural outflow of the gospel truths that he has just stated And it's clear that he wants our prayers to be shaped by these gospel truths. One way of defining prayer is that prayer is getting caught up in the big story of what God is doing in the world and celebrating and making requests consistent with that unfolding story. And Paul has just told us what the big story is. It's the gospel story. And we should be praying for the unfolding of this story. And once we begin praying this way, it's inevitable that we will get drawn into this story and become a role player in it. This amazing drama of redemption. It's interesting to note that Paul doesn't use guilt to motivate men to pray. He doesn't say, shame on you men for not praying. Instead, he uses gospel truth to motivate men to pray. It's only on the other side of affirming these gospel truths that Paul says, therefore, because of these gospel realities, I want the men to pray. And ladies, if I can just pull one lesson out of this, Paul is modeling for you how to motivate your man to do what your man ought to do. Paul says to you ladies, as it were, I'm going to minister to your husband and get him to pray. And you say, oh, goody, this will be fun to watch. And you listen intently to what Paul says in this chapter, waiting for Paul to lower the boom and to shame your husband into praying. And instead, you hear Paul speak a series of, of beautiful gospel affirmations followed immediately by a call to prayer. Apparently, ladies, Paul believes that the gospel is a very potent source of motivation for your husband to become all that God wants him to be. Do you see that here? So if your husband is a Christian, affirm him in the gospel. Speak gospel truth into his life Impart the gospel to your husband, not simply through the words you speak, but also through the way that you go about relating to him from day to day. Be the premier evangelist in your husband's life. Seek to influence him into a deeper persuasion of the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, and the power of the gospel of grace. And if you do this, I think you'll find that nothing will so ennoble and transform your husband like the gospel does. We all do well to learn this, men and women, that believing in the gospel, we all say we believe in the gospel, but believing in the gospel means more than just believing it's true. It also means believing it's powerful. Believing that it's the most powerful motivational force that you can wield in the lives of those that you are seeking to influence. It's more powerful than ugliness. 
guilt trips and silent treatments and other forms of manipulation. If we believe in the gospel in this way, we will make rich use of it in our ministry to other people. And we'll find ourselves, I think, often having to put on our running shoes to keep up with what God will do in the lives of those that we're seeking to influence as we minister the gospel to them in this way. Does that make sense? There's a third thing that Paul wants from Christian men when it comes to prayer. Number three, God wants men to pray in every place. He wants men to pray in every place. Listen to verse eight once again. I want the men in every place to pray. You know, we men need help. Uh, and we benefit from very simple and specific instructions. Sometimes we need to be told what to do and where to do it. A man may say, I, I know now that I need to pray habitually, but where in the world will I do that? My wife will sometimes send me to the grocery store to get an item, and I will often ask her, where in the store will I find this? And she often has to tell me where I will find that item. Otherwise, I waste way too much time looking for it. So Paul tells men to pray. And then he very helpfully narrows down the location and identifies the exact location where you as a man should pray. And that place is called every place. And this means everywhere in the church, in the care group, in the workplace, in the home, on the freeway, when standing in line at the store, men are to view every place as a sacred spot for prayer. Every morning, I take my dog on a mile-long walk around my block through our neighborhood. And in the past, I just used to walk my dog. But now I begin my walk with a prayer, asking God to bring me across some neighbor that I can meet or at least wave to. And since doing that, it seems that I am meeting more neighbors and having opportunity to introduce myself to them and engage in conversations with them and it's been happening to such an extent that I've printed out an aerial shot of our neighborhood. And I'm writing in the names of all of my neighbors as I get to know them. This past week, I came across a man on my block who needed his car battery jumped. So I helped him out. Never met him before. And I actually got to pray with him before he drove off. I'm learning that even on a sidewalk while walking my dog is a good place to enjoy the adventure of prayer. Pray in every place, Paul says. And this is God speaking through Paul. The touching thing about this call is that in it, God is essentially saying, wherever you are, I want to go with you. I want our relationship to go there. Wherever you are, I want you to talk to me from there. There's also a promise embodied in this instruction. The promise is that God has so structured the universe that you as a man will never find yourself in a location where there's a bad connection and God can't hear you when you try to speak to him, stating it positively, God is saying to men, every place is a hot spot where you have a direct connection to me. And that goes for the mountaintop. And even in the valley, you don't lose reception. You never lose reception with me. God is saying to men, I hear you from everywhere. So please talk to me from every place. When you find yourself in trials, pray. When you're encouraged, pray. When your heart is broken, pray. When you're frustrated in your marriage, 
pray. When you're burdened for your children, pray. When you're rejoicing over your children, pray. When you are at work, pray. When you are on your way to work, pray. When you find yourself in the place of failure, having sinned, pray. When you are struggling in ministry, pray. When you want me to work in the lives of others that you are burdened for, pray. Pray all the time in every place. On top of all these places, one of the greatest places that a man can pray and should pray is in his home. In fact, I think we can say one's true greatness as a man of God will be displayed most of all by the prayers that he prays in his home. Charles Spurgeon, as many of you know, was an eloquent preacher whose oratory could hold thousands enthralled. Yet after he died, his wife, Susanna, confessed that what she missed most about him was his prayers at home. Listen to what she shared after her husband had passed. She wrote, after the meal was over, an adjournment was made to the study for family worship. And it was at these seasons that my beloved's prayers were remarkable for their tender childlikeness, their spiritual pathos, and their intense devotion. He seemed to come as near to God as a little child to a loving father. And we were often moved to tears as he talked thus face to face with his Lord. One visitor to the Spurgeon household describes Spurgeon's prayers in this way. He says, then how full of tender pleading, of serene confidence in God, of world embracing sympathy were his prayers. His public prayers were an inspiration and benediction But his prayers with the family were to me more wonderful still. Mr. Spurgeon, when bowed before God in family prayer, appeared a grander man even than when holding thousands spellbound by his oratory. Men, pray. Pray in every place. Pray with and for your wife. Pray with and for your family. Pray with and for others. Pray for kings and for all who are in authority. Pray for the salvation of the lost. Realize that Christ died to give his life as a ransom so that people can now have a savior through him. Pray for God to use you in reaching the lost whom God intends to save. Pray in every place. When you do that, you literally turn every place into a sacred spot, a portal between heaven and earth, and you enter more deeply into the story of what God is doing in the world. And I believe every Christian man wants that. There's a fourth thing that we can observe in this verse that God wants from men With regard to prayer, number four, God wants the men to pray, lifting up holy hands. God wants the men to pray, lifting up holy hands. Verse eight, Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. It's interesting when you read through the text of Scripture from beginning to end, you you end up encountering various postures for prayer that are identified, and all of them are legitimate. There's no one that's better than the other. In Daniel 6.10, we see Daniel kneeling in prayer. In Luke 18.13, we see a tax collector standing while praying, and it's a prayer that God heard. And responded to in Second Samuel seven eighteen, we see David sitting before the Lord while in prayer. In Genesis twenty four twenty six, we see Abraham's servant bowing his head in prayer. So bowing his head in prayer, and then in John seventeen one, we have Jesus lifting his eyes, his head going the other way, lifting his eyes to heaven in prayer. In Genesis 17:3, we see Abraham bowed to the ground in prayer to God. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, 
we see that lifting up hands in prayer is a biblically sanctioned posture for prayer. And it's even encouraged here. It's something that Paul wants the men to do in this verse. It's interesting to note if you do a study of God's people raising their hands in prayer and worship in the scripture, you, you, you begin to notice that there are various settings in which God's people raise their hands to God. They raise their hands in Psalm 143, verse 6, in supplication, making request of, of God. Uh, they also raise their hands in praise to God. We see that in Psalm 134, verses 1 and 2. We even, in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 19, see God's people raising their hands in mourning and lamentation. And we actually see a case in Scripture where God's people raise their hands to the Lord when they confess their sins to him in repentance. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3. He says, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. So we see God's people raising their hands in a variety of settings, asking, making petition of God, praising God, mourning, and even repenting and confessing their sins. And we as believers are free to lift up our hands for all of these reasons when we pray to God. And Paul encourages that here. Having said that, the Bible clearly teaches that raising one's hands in prayer does not automatically make one's prayers acceptable to God. God is not impressed that someone is raising their hands in prayer. It doesn't make it automatic that he will hear their prayer because, oh, look, their hands are raised. On one occasion in the Old Testament, the Israelites were worshiping God with their hands raised, but God rejected their worship. And you know why? Because something was wrong with their hands. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, God says, When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And we can see from this passage and from our text, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, how crucial it is that when we raise our hands to the Lord in worship, and in prayer that we lift up holy hands to God. Which is why Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. That said, the worst thing that anyone in this room could do after reading this instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, is to stay away from God because their hands aren't holy. If your hands this morning are unholy, don't try to clean them up before you approach God. Instead, come to God with your unholy hands and let him make them holy. He's the only one who can. If you're here today and you're wondering, how can I get holy hands? Here's what you need to do. First of all, believe in Jesus. No matter what you have done this past week, what blood may be on your hands, what filth may be on your hands, given the things that you have done, you can believe in Jesus. Come running to him with your dirty hands and your sinful heart and ask him to forgive you and to cleanse you from your sin. And he will do that. Secondly, by all means, and this is related to the first, get into Jesus. In Psalm 24, 3, the psalmist asks a couple of really sobering 
questions. He asked, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? And the answer he provides should be troubling to everyone who has an active conscience. His answer in verse four is, here's who can. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto falsehood. And he continues. How many of you in this room have perfectly clean hands? A perfectly pure heart. And you've never, ever one time in your life lifted up your soul unto falsehood. None of us can claim that, which means that none of us are qualified to enter into God's presence and pray to him. But there is one person who qualifies, and his name is Jesus. He is the only one with truly clean hands and a truly pure heart. He's the only one who never one time in his life lifted up his soul unto falsehood. So if you want to stand in the holy place and pray and commune with God, you must run to Jesus and get into him. Then when you raise your hands in God's presence, you can raise your hands in Jesus' name, not your own. If you are in Christ and you raise your hands in prayer, it will be as if you are raising Christ's hands in the very presence of God. Honestly, when I pray to God, the only hands I want to lift up are the holy hands of Christ, boasting scars that point to his atoning death for all of my sins. That's my only ticket into God's presence. It's a wholesome thing to raise my own hands in prayer to God. But even when I do that, I can only do that in Jesus' name. And not simply because I've had a good week and I perform really well. See my hands, Lord? They're holy. I've, I've had a great seven days. No, even on your best day, you're only qualified to raise your hand to the Lord in prayer through the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. So believe in Jesus. Get into Jesus. Thirdly, if you want to lift up holy hands to God, live a consecrated life. The word holy means set apart. So your hands should be set apart to God, wholly devoted to his purposes in all of life, not just raising them when you pray. You can't use your hands for sin in one moment and then in the next moment lift those hands which are instruments of unrepentant sin to God in prayer that turns your prayer into a mockery. View your hands as belonging to God in all of life, not just when you pray and you worship him. And finally, if you want to lift up holy hands to God, confess your sins when you fall short. We all fall short of living fully consecrated lives, right? And when we fail, what do we do? We should confess our sins to God and experience the cleansing and forgiveness that he provides. My point in all of this is to say that if your hands are unholy, don't stay away from Jesus. That's the worst thing that you can do. He's the one that you most need to come to. Come to Jesus with your unholy hands and ask him to make them holy. He's an expert at doing that. Amen. In fact, in Mark three, we find a man who had a problem with his hand. He had a withered or dried up hand and Jesus wanted to fix the man's hand. So he spoke to the man who was sitting in the synagogue and he commanded him to rise up and to come forward towards himself, Jesus. And once the man did that, Jesus then said to him, stretch forth your hand. Let me see your hand. Stretch it forth to me. And the man obeyed and he stretched forth his mangled hand to Jesus. And he experienced the healing of that hand. Likewise, if you have hands that are deformed and withered, 
by sin. Don't try to get them fixed before you stretch them out to Jesus. Rise up and go to Jesus right now this morning and stretch out your sinful hands to him and ask him to make them whole. No one can make your hands holy like he can. There's a fifth and final thing that we observe in this verse that God wants from men with regard to prayer. Number five, God wants men to pray without wrath or dissension. Read 1 Timothy 2.8 with me one more time. Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or dissension. Paul is saying men are to pray, and when they pray, they're to do so without their prayers being tainted by wrathful anger, explosions of wrath and anger, and without quarrelings or disputings. Both the word wrath and dissension used here are essentially relational terms. Paul is saying that men are not to be wrathful and quarrelsome with each other in the church, with their wife and children, nor are they to be wrathful and quarrelsome with governmental authorities, nor with the lost. In other words, he's saying, don't be a jerk toward the people in your life. And then try to be Mr. Prayer Warrior at the same time. That's what he's saying. If you want to know the opposite of what it means to have wrath and dissension, it's the words tranquil and quiet that Paul speaks about in verse 2, that we are to strive to live in a society and exhibit in a society in which we find ourselves And by the way, there's only one way to truly be without wrath and dissension toward others. And that is to first appreciate how God is wrath-free toward us. When we come to God to pray to Him, we are blessed to know as Christians that we are in a wrath-free zone. There is no wrath from God toward us as Christians who have believed in Jesus, because Christ has already absorbed his wrath so that we don't have to. The holy place where we commune with God is also a dissension free zone. There is no disputation coming from God toward us. We deserve dissension from God when we come into his presence to pray, but instead of what we deserve, we get grace. Wrath-free, dissension-free grace from God. So how can we pray in the enjoyment of this grace while at the same time harboring wrath against others who have sinned against us? That's a hard contradiction to pull off. What we should do is behold God's grace toward us and toward others in the gospel, and then show people this same grace that God has shown toward us every time we come into his presence to pray. We we ought to be dazzled every time we come into God's presence to pray, amazed that it's wrath-free and dissension-free. Where we're confronted afresh every time how amazing God's grace really is. And then we get to go forth from prayer and mirror that same grace toward others to where they can taste that grace from us so that when we then speak to them of God's grace, they have an idea what we're talking about because they've tasted that very grace from us, a grace that that we've been perfumed with by our time and God's presence in prayer. So here's the calculus of prayer for all of us. We deserve wrath. We deserve dissension from God. And we receive none of it when we come to him in prayer through Jesus Christ. We should be so shaped by this grace that we happily provide those who come into our presence a wrath-free zone, a dissension-free zone, a safe place where they can experience God's grace even through us. May God teach us as men 
all of us, but I'm preaching to the men this morning. May God teach us as men to pray in this way that we've seen in 1 Timothy 2.8. May he shape us and humble us as men in such a way that we men are the first ones to say, let's pray, rather than the last. May God make us quick to say, I am lost and I must pray for wisdom. For most of us as men, before GPS came around, we're in the car and we're lost. Our wife knows we're lost 30 minutes before we realize we're lost, right? Or at least before we're willing to admit it. But may God make us as men quick to say, I am lost and I must cry out to him for wisdom. May God make us as men quick to say, I am too weak to handle this or to do this on my own. I must come to God and pray to him for strength. I don't got this. And I need God's help. May God make us as men quick to say, I have sinned. And I must run to God in prayer to confess my sins and receive grace and forgiveness from him. May God make us men who say, I want God to use me. So I will pray and ask him to use me to impact the lives of other people. It takes a tremendous amount of doing for God to get a man on his knees in prayer. Normally, when a man is on his knees in prayer, he's praying to God for a miracle. God has reduced him to that place where that man is in desperate need of a miracle. So he's on his knees asking God to do a miracle. That man on his knees is usually not aware of the fact that it's already a miracle that he's even on his knees in prayer. A man on his knees with head bowed, crying out to God and doing broken man kind of praying is among God's mightiest signs and wonders. And it's usually one of the first indications of a fresh work of God in a community. A praying man is such a miracle because honestly, there's nothing that cuts against the grain of fallen manhood more than prayer. Prayer, by its very definition, is pleading helplessness before God. And a man doesn't like to be helpless. He especially doesn't like to be helpless in front of his wife and his children. But on the other side of this kind of praying is a whole new kind of manhood that's available. That is far more exalting and empowering than anything that a natural man could ever achieve on his own. This is the kind of manhood that we should want as men. It's what Paul wants from us as men. It's what God wants from us as men. And I suspect that it's the kind of manhood that our wives and children desire desperately from us as well. Let's pray and ask God to make us this kind of praying men. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we look at all that we've looked at this morning and we set about to pray and then we're honestly left where Paul was in Romans 8 when he says we don't even know how to pray as we should. And Paul then begins to speak of the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're so helpless that we must pray, but we're so helpless that we don't even know how to pray as we should. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who helps us with our weakness in prayer. Who intercedes for us with groanings we cannot utter. Who helps us to give expression to what we should be praying for. And even when our prayers fall short, the Spirit is perfectly articulating exactly what the need of our hearts is. Thank you, Lord, for the companionship and the help of your spirit. Having given us your Holy Spirit, we as men are without excuse. We're called to be men who pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension 
And we're given the spirit to help us. We're given your word to help us. You've removed all wrath between us and you. All dissension from you toward us. You've cleared it all through the blood of Jesus and opened the way for us to come into your presence at such an incredibly high price. All hindrances have been removed. And if our hands are unholy, we say, well, I can't pray because my hands are unholy. You say, no, come to me with your unholy hands and ask me to make them holy. There's no excuse for a prayerless man. And there's nothing more dangerous than a prayerless man. Save us from prayerlessness, Lord, and make us men who pray as the habit of our lives. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. Receive what we give in this offering. Do much with all that is given for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.